So we're launching into Acts chapter 12. If you're new with us, what we've been following is the church in Jerusalem as it was newly started and began rapidly growing, expanding into other areas, but predominantly everything kind of centers around Jerusalem, these first 12 chapters in Acts. And over time, they begin having these intensified conflicts with other religious authorities and governmental authorities in the region. And it begins to get harder and harder for them to do ministry. Uh, A widespread persecution breaks out and they scatter. Even in the midst of that scattering, we find the church growing rapidly in new areas of the empire. And so what we find today is back in Jerusalem, the persecution is still very intense and we have a new player in the game. So if you go to Acts chapter 12, we'll begin at verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of soldiers. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after Passover. So King Herod grabs Peter, puts him to death with the sword. He, excuse me, Brad James puts him to death with the sword. And then seeing that everyone really liked that, that it pleased the crowd, he said, well, let's go for a sequel and let's grab Peter too. What it appears that he's doing, he's grabbing some of the most prominent leaders there in the Jerusalem church in an effort to flex his muscles and let everyone know who is in charge. Herod is an interesting guy like that. But for clarity, I wanted to to talk about which Herod, because there are about four Herods mentioned in the New Testament. And just real quickly walk through for clarity who we're dealing with. The first Herod mentioned in the Bible is Herod the Great. He is the granddaddy of all the Herods, and he's the guy that is trying to kill the little babies in an effort to kill Jesus when he is born. So Herod the Great commanded the slaughter of all of the children ages two and under born to Israel in the time period of Jesus' birth. Jesus' family then flees to Egypt to be safe. And upon Herod's death at about 4 B.C., he, the the family, returns. This is actually very consistent with what we know about Herod. He was a nasty, violent man. They say upon his death, as he was on his deathbed, he brought in about 40 or 50 of the most prominent religious leaders and rabbis into custody with the command to kill them upon his death because he knew no one would mourn for him, but at least they would mourn. That's Herod. Herod had some sons, and they kind of divided the kingdom amongst them because they couldn't agree on which of Herod's six wills they should follow. His son that becomes the ruler of Judea, that shows up during the life of Jesus, that presides over the trial of Jesus, is Herod Antipas. Now, later on, Herod Agrippa, who is Antipas' nephew, if that makes any sense, the grandson of Herod the Great, decides he wants more rule and reign, and so he convinces his friend the emperor that Herod Antipas is out to overthrow him. And so Herod Agrippa, who's the guy we're dealing with here in Acts 12, by turning on his own uncle and having him exiled, has taken over a really large section of the empire that he rules on behalf of Rome. We'll meet Herod Agrippa's son, Herod Agrippa II, real, real you know, creative family when it comes to names. Uh, there's Herod the other Herod, and the other Herod. It's kind of like this is my brother Daryl and my other brother Daryl. Uh, we'll meet Herod Agrippa later on in the trial of the Apostle Paul. 
So this family, interestingly enough, has been around Jesus and the disciples and the gospel over and over again, yet appears to consistently be antagonistic towards the preaching of the gospel and the ministry of the disciples. So Herod Agrippa I has them arrested. He kills James, the brother of John, with the sword. And then he sees that everyone likes it. And so what he does is he arrests Peter, has him guarded by way too many guards for one person. It says by four squads of four soldiers. Now, Peter was the feistiest among the disciples, right? He's the guy in the Gospels who has the sword. He's the guy that cuts the guy's ear off. So if you're going to tag team one of the disciples, it's probably going to be Peter. But 16 soldiers? That's a little overkill for a fisherman with a sword. I mean, I've seen a few kung fu movies, and that's a little blown out of proportion. This is highly unlikely. But they've got 16 people, and the intention is we're going to drag him out for public trial after Passover. This is less about justice and more about entertainment. See, public trial and public execution was actually very common in the Roman world. Instead of, you know, maybe we'll do lethal injection here in the States. Go to Washington, they're a little crazy, they might still hang people. But we're pretty mild when it comes to execution. But they said, look, we got a guy who's about to die. Why don't we turn this into a spectator sport? So commonly, if someone was sentenced to death, they would throw them in a coliseum, throw them in some kind of sporting venue, and have them fight with a trained gladiator. And if you've seen the movie Gladiator, none of us hold much of a chance against Russell Crowe in the Coliseum. So the plan is we're going to drag him out for public spectacle. It is much more about him appeasing the people than it is about him exacting some form of justice. It's very interesting to see how the tables have turned on the disciples during this time period between Acts 5, when the Jewish leaders want to arrest them and they're afraid to use force because the people adore the disciples, to Acts 12, where it pleases the Jews to arrest and kill them. So the tables have turned. This is now a hostile ministry environment that they're working in. And what we find here is Acts 12 is a struggle for power that takes place as the gospel is preached. There is the power of Satan expressed by those who follow him and his desire for humanity against the power of God and those who follow him and his agenda. And I want to just be real clear. Why do we say that Herod represents the power of Satan? If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Verses 1 and 2. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So he says, you guys who are now believers, you used to follow another way of doing things who is the kind of the, the king of this world. And that's a reference to Satan. He said, these people, these sons who are disobedient are following, whether they know it or not, the lead of Satan. Disobedient to what? Specifically, 
the command to repent and believe the gospel. And so that those who are disobedient to that, who are antagonistic towards that, whether they know it or not, whether they wear pentagrams or not, are following the agenda and initiative and leading of the devil. Additionally, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, we understand that the ministry, if you'll say, or the work of the devil is particularly targeted around silencing and hiding the gospel message. So if you go to 2 Corinthians 4, you'll see that as well. Verses 3 through 4. It says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled for those who are perishing because the God of this age, which is a euphemism for Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan's initiative is centered around silencing the gospel and veiling people's eyes to see it. Very much consistent with what Herod is attempting to accomplish, which is what? To silence the gospel, to silence the ministry and the proclamation of the apostles that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And so Herod gets on that team, and we know lots of people who are on that team, because what I just said, guys, is that everyone who does not follow Jesus is on Satan's team. There are two teams, Jesus' team and Satan's team. Two choices. But they're really sweet people. Yes, they're really sweet people who follow Satan. They're really sweet, I know. And it's not necessarily their fault. What they need is for God to transform their heart. But they're really sweet people who don't understand God's initiative. And since they're not on Jesus' team, there is no other team to be on. By default, that's where you land. Now, even in 2 Corinthians 11, it tells us that Satan himself and his operatives clothe themselves as angels of light. So being super sweet and starting a cult is still evil. Being super sweet and silencing the gospel through social pressure and telling everyone not to be judgmental is still evil. And so Herod doesn't even get the benefit of being super sweet. He's somewhat nasty and goes straight after people, killing them. And I want you to put yourself in the mindset of the church there in Jerusalem. You were welcomed at the beginning with, with great joy, people excited, and now the culture has shifted where the gospel is an annoyance at best and dangerous at worst. Sound familiar in America? Where the preaching of the gospel was the great awakening in America, the, the thing that, that we look to as as what defined us in many ways, and now bring the gospel into the public arena and prepare for ridicule at best. And so as we look at a similar situation that has taken a little longer to play out, it's very easy to be discouraged and to believe that the powers of evil in this world, that those rulers, authorities, and principalities and forces of evil are winning. What I want us to see in that moment when we feel like we are under attack and have no chance of winning, I want you to see how the church responded to the power of Satan. In Acts chapter 12, verse 5, we find the church believing in the power of prayer. Acts 
says this, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up and said, Get up, quick. He said, And the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him, and Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that the angel, what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened by itself. And then they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. So look at this. Right, Peter's been arrested. They told us there were 16 guards generally assigned to him. In prison, he's actually sitting in the cell, chained to two soldiers. Then there's a few layers of gates and soldiers to get past. An angel shows up, and they are just completely unconscious. And Peter gets out of there. Peter's not even believing this. He thinks it's a vision or a dream or something. And he gets to the house where, what are they doing? They're praying for his release. Praying for God to do something miraculous. He knocks on the door. The servant girl comes and freaks out and goes, No, it's not Peter. Yeah, it is. Go get him and tell him. And so she does the same thing. She runs and she tells everybody who's praying, Hey, Peter's here. They go, No, Peter's not here. Yes, he is. And then everyone just freaks out. Which I could understand why. It's a little crazy. But this whole thing plays out in response to what the disciples do when they face spiritual attack. The response is they earnestly pray. Some translations say fervently. The Greek word used there is a very interesting one that is used in Luke describing Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane when He is headed towards the cross. The Bible says He prayed earnestly and that it was so intense that His sweat was like drops of blood. And this same word describing their passion and intensity in prayer is used to describe Jesus the night before He goes to the cross. If you'll remember the story, you'll remember that the disciples were unable to pray like that. They couldn't keep watch for Him a few hours. And they begin to fall asleep. Earlier they had lacked the capacity to seek God with such earnestness, passion, and hunger. And now the Spirit working on them, changing them, they're enabled to pray in that same way. So they pray earnestly, seeking God to rescue them. Their response to trouble is prayer. Is yours? 
Their response to trouble was to gather others around them to pray with them. Is yours. You know, one of the ways that that we, we promote this value, one of the reasons that we do the life group thing is this very thing. Is that when trouble comes, you need someone to pray with. You need people to pray earnestly on your behalf. We need that. When we're in a spiritual battle, we need reinforcements. We need others there lifting our request before God along with us. Not only because it's a source of encouragement for us, but because the Scriptures say in James 4 that you do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you ask with the wrong motives. That when we pray, God will answer. When we pray rightly, with a heart that seeks God's will, He answers. Things happen when people pray. Things happen that would not have happened otherwise. And I know that probably made a few Calvinists squirm. I'm on the team, so I can say that. But what the Scriptures say is that God has ordained things to happen that will not happen unless we pray. That in God's sovereign will, He has chosen to respond to our prayers. So we must pray. We must pray passionately, fervently, earnestly with other people. So if you're not in a life group and you're missing out on this, this is your opportunity. Or maybe you're in a life group and because of pride or social awkwardness or whatever, you don't use your life group in this way. Begin to do it. Take a risk and say, I am struggling here. Will you pray for me? Will you pray with me? And if you're in a life group and no one is doing that, take the initiative and ask, is there something I can pray for that you guys are going through? These things only work, life groups only promote this value if we have those conversations and if we trust each other enough to share something and to pray. So get in a life group and be that kind of life group. If you're not sure where to start, and you ha- you're, maybe you're new here, after the second hour service, right about lunchtime over in our children's building, there's going to be a group that's called the bridge group. They don't play bridge. It's, the idea is it's a bridge from not being in a life group to being in one. There's probably about 30 people that are going to hang out there and have a potluck. If you didn't know about it, don't worry about it. Just go. Uh, get to meet some people. Make that initial connection if you're looking for a first step. But they are to passionately pray What we need to remember is that our power for ministry and for fruitfulness in the Christian life is directly connected to our prayer lives. John In John 15, Jesus teaches this very principle. In John 15, verse 1, Jesus begins to lay out for us what His teaching regarding prayer is. Actually, we'll look at verses 5 through 8. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. I want to walk through that for a minute, but if we seek Christ and His will, if our desire is to be fruitful for Him in ministry, and we pray, God will answer our prayer. 
For we ask in Jesus' name that we might be used by Him to bear spiritual fruit, to advance the gospel, to be conformed to His image. That is a prayer that Jesus will answer. That's what John 15 says. But if we detach from Him, we're not connected to Him in prayer, then we will not be fruitful. Jesus says you can do nothing on your own. So when we face trouble, and even before then maybe, we ought to pray. We ought to seek God, seek Christ, remain in Him so that we can be fruitful. Because if we don't, we will be barren and fruitful. And Jesus says, worthy of being thrown in the fire. Now that doesn't mean our eternal salvation. That does mean that we will not be useful. And so we pray. And we see God respond and move mightily on their behalf because of their prayer. And so when they face the power of Satan, their response is to trust in the power of prayer. But not everyone is turning to God. If you'll go back to Acts chapter 12, verse 19, you will find that some people remain hard-hearted. And they will see God's power in a different way. It says, Then, after Herod made a thorough search... For him and made and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while, because he had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they joined him together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal assistant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod was wearing his royal robes and sat on his throne and delivered the public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. That's awesome. He was eaten by worms and died. That's my new life verse. Put that into your kids. Hide that in their hearts. All right. That wasn't in the notes. The interesting thing here, guys, is that Herod, Herod does this thing, and Josephus, the historian, actually records it with stunning consistency. And his story it goes like this when he adds more detail. Josephus, the historian, says that, that Herod was hosting these big games, these big gladiatorial contests there in Caesarea, and he had made for himself a garment made of silver, and that he put it on, and then upon entering the Colosseum, the sun shined on him, and he radiated, and these pagan people said, oh, he's a god, little g, and they worshipped him. And Herod kind of digs this. He kind of likes to be called God, but God is offended when he receives worship. Herod knows enough to rebuke them. He was raised in a quasi-Jewish home. He has enough sense to know that that's not acceptable. Instead, he receives the worship, and God says, you know what, Herod, I think I've had about enough of you. You're going to die now. And strikes him down, and he dies. And the worms ate his body. So that's, that's what comes of Herod. He doesn't trust in the power of God for salvation, but he experiences the power of God's wrath. 
Now, the interesting thing, before we bag on Herod, his sin of promoting himself to the level of God is actually something that has a lot of consistency throughout the Bible. We understand that that was the sin of Satan. That's how this whole thing began. He was an angel created to worship God in heaven. And rather than doing that, he decided that he should be elevated to God that he should receive a promotion. And because of that, he is cast out of heaven, never to be welcomed home again. And one day, we'll spend eternity in the lake of fire. And Satan, liking that sin so much, goes to Adam and Eve, our first parents, and pitches the same deal. He says, God doesn't want you to eat this fruit of the knowledge of good and evil because he knows that you will be like him. You'll get promoted too, and God is holding out on you. And so Adam and Eve decide that God's authority is not good. They desire their own authority. And so they flip the org chart, and that sin is what gets the whole thing rolling. And to be honest, that sin is at the root of all of our sin. When we choose, rather than obedience to God and His command, rather than following Christ, we will be our own authority. We will be our own authority. That's the problem when raising kids. We're constantly, when disciplining our children, explaining the org chart. Jesus, mommy, daddy, you. And the problem happens is when, when one of the kids decides, it's me. That, they, that this authority line that God has laid out doesn't suit them. And so when we sin, when we disobey God, it's essentially the same thing. We decide we would rather be our own God and call our own shots and not live under His authority. And that sin, that rebellious spirit, that disobedience before God, always, in every instance, without a doubt, leads to our destruction. We cannot sin and defy God and not expect anything bad to ever happen. Eventually... It will occur. Now, as believers in the Lord, we are forgiven not on the basis of our own works, but on the basis of Christ's death on the cross and resurrection, giving us eternal life. And that is the basis of our salvation. So we don't lose it when we sin, but we do experience God's discipline and we do miss out on God's desire for our lives. And so in every instance, even when believers do it, it is negative for us because we oftentimes desire to follow our own way, which Proverbs says leads to destruction. And so God kills Herod. And one of the interesting things you will see if you study history is that it is littered with the corpses of men who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. History is littered with the dead bodies of men who opposed Christ. Not because the church has violently gone after them and killed them, but because the truth of the scriptures that sin leads to death is undeniable. I mean, go through the list of men who, who had great power and wielded it against the cause of Christ. Mao Zedong, where, where's he? Dead. Saddam Hussein? Dead. It's gonna, I, I put a list together. Hitler, dead. Stalin, dead. Lenin, dead. We're going to a list of these guys. Nietzsche, who proclaimed that God is dead, is guess what? Dead. When you buck God, when you go against Him, when you bow your neck to the Lord Jesus, you will never be victorious. This is not a threat. This is a call to repentance out of a compassionate heart that desires to see good for everyone in this room. But if you do not seek Christ 
and His power for salvation, you will see the power of God's wrath. Revelation 19 describes it beautifully. The risen, reigning, exalted Christ coming to right things, to bring about the vindication of the righteous and the judgment of the wicked. If you will go to it, I just love this passage. Revelation 19, verse 11 is where we'll start. It describes Jesus. and It says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on the head... On his head are many crowns, and his name was written on him that no one knows but him himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God, and the armies of heaven following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing who cried out in a loud voice, to all of the birds flying in midair, come gather for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men and of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave and small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped the image. And the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Now this sounds crazy. My kids love this picture of Jesus. My three and five year old boys hear this passage like, where do I sign? Jesus has a sword? When do I get my sword? They love Jesus exalted, reigning to make war. If you ask them what happens when Jesus comes back, if they don't get shy, they will tell you. He's got a sword and a horse and He's going to kill the bad guys. And they're jazzed. They love this picture of Jesus. If you have five, We could go right now into the kindergarten class, pull out all the boys. Every one of them will be saved and signed up to follow Jesus today if we preach Revelation 19. Moms, your little boy should have a sword. Jesus does. (laughs) Only use it on the bad guys. They love this picture because something within all of us desires to see justice. Because we look around, we see the power of Satan, it seems to be winning, and it just messes with our heads, and we long for a day when Jesus will return. When every... Every tear will be wiped away for those who have sought Him and suffered on His behalf and that those who have opposed Him will be judged. It will come. And we don't delight in that day looking towards other people's destruction, but we do delight in the day when Christ returns and sin is eradicated. And our cry to those who would reject the Gospel, who would be obstinate towards God, is to repent while there is still time. While there is still time, the wrath of God may be stayed for you if you will trust in Jesus. And so then we see another movement of God's power. We see the power of the Gospel played out in Acts 12 again. In verse 24. It 
says, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. Herod persecuted the church. Herod killed the apostles. Herod's dead. And the gospel moves forward. Mao Zedong persecuted the church. He killed the disciples. He silenced the gospel to the greatest degree he could. And the church in China flourishes. And Mao Zedong is dead. We run through a list of these guys. And in every instance, the gospel moves forward and they are awaiting final judgment. We serve a conquering, risen Christ and the movement of the gospel will prevail. Do not be discouraged. Do not be sad and do not be heavy-hearted. The gospel will advance. The church of Christ will accomplish its mission. I know that we look around our culture and we see something totally opposed to the gospel, but be certain of this. Jesus still reigns and will return. And if you are here today and you have been like Herod and opposed the gospel at every turn, you have ridiculed your friends and neighbors because of their belief, you've been drugged here. Herod, till the moment of his last breath could have turned to Christ and been saved. There is no sin that Jesus will not forgive. But rather than bowing before Christ in humble submission, experiencing the joy of salvation, Herod and those like him will bow before Christ in judgment. Not to experience eternal joy, but eternal suffering. And I'm not here to scare anyone or, or, or to use fear. But there is a godly fear that brings repentance. So if you're not a Christian and you recognize that you've been obstinate towards God, that you have been rebellious towards Him, there is yet time. Today can be the day that you move from being an object of God's wrath to a dearly loved son or daughter. The hurdle is this and this alone. Will you trust that Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty for your sin and that His resurrection provides you the promise of eternal life? If you will trust in that today the power of the gospel will become real for you. 1 Corinthians 1 says, it's the power of God unto salvation that you would be saved. And if you're here today and you've been saved, but that rebelliousness is becoming more and more of a reality, this is an opportunity to turn back to Him. We see the power of Satan all around respond by this, trusting the power of prayer, trusting the power of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you are an infinitely good and loving God. We rejoice that you have offered us salvation in your Son. And Lord, we would pray that today, those of us who stand in need of repentance would do it. Lord, I I am convicted even this morning of my need, Lord, to trust you more. To seek you more. To chase harder after you. And so... Father, I pray that for each of us, this would be a day that we would look back on with a renewed understanding of your grace, of your goodness, that while we were deserving of that wrath that Revelation 19 describes coming in some day, that you have offered us friendship, that you have offered us forgiveness, and that you have offered us an eternity of joy in your presence if we will just receive it. Father, I pray that those who are not believers, who have not trusted in Christ, that that even now your spirit would move in such a way to soften their heart, to open their eyes, to see the beauty of the gospel, the glory of Christ, the good news that he died for our sins and rose again. 
and for those of us who are believers, that we would be reminded yet again that we would seek hard after Him. That we would not elevate ourselves as God, but that we would seek Him wholeheartedly submitting to His authority. In Jesus' name, amen.